Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, everyone. Welcome back to the Healthcare Whisperer Radio Show. Uh, this is a show about giving you information on healthcare issues and empowering you as the patient. My name is Hari Kulsa, and I am your host. I am a nurse practitioner and patient advocate. I am also the president of Healthcare Whisperer, Inc., and my website is healthcarewhisperer.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at H-A-R-I-K-108 or Facebook at Healthcare Whisperer or on LinkedIn at Hari Kulsa. The purpose of this show is to provide information, tips, and tools to help get you through the maze we call the healthcare system. It certainly can be daunting, scary, and seemingly endless. This show is all about giving you information and how to stay safe through all the endeavors in the healthcare system. Today is Rare Disease Day. And in the past, you know, I've had lots of I've had people on uh who deal a lot with rare disease. Uh you can go to raredeseaseday.org. That's www.raredisease.org to get more information, learn about what's going on. I know it's sort of, sort of late in the day, but uh you can just get some information, maybe put it in your calendar for next year. Uh because there's stories, resources, information for you. Uh and I also want to give a shout out today to You Are Our Hope, a great organization that helps people with rare and undiagnosed diseases. Uh they're they have a great uh they're a wonderful wonderful organization and I want to thank you personally for your work. And what a great segue to today's guest, Michelle Rosenthal. She is someone who can who will speak firsthand of her experience with being diagnosed with a rare illness, suffering the trauma of that illness, having PTSD, and her road back to health. She is an amazing person. She's a keynote speaker, award-winning blogger, author, workshop leader, mental health advocate. Uh she works she has an amazing website called healmyptsd.com. Um and we'll probably we'll talk about that I'm sure. She's also written a wonderful wonderful book on her trauma and PTSD uh called Before the World Intruded. Uh she recently was announced as a finalist for the Books for a Better Life award uh which yeah, wow, that's fantastic. And she sits on the advisory board for help for ptsdvets.org and is the program director for wellness services for Warriors Pathfinder program. So, without further ado because I cannot I could go on about how incredible she is, so let's just get her on so she can tell us all about her journey and her tips. So let's see, Michelle. Hi, Michelle. How are you? Thank you hey. for coming on. <laughs> oh, thank you so much for having me. And I had no idea today is Rare Disease Day. I feel so lucky to have survived and be able to be here to celebrate. I know it's pretty amazing. It's, it's, it's uh, someone who works with a lot. Well, someone who runs the UR Hope group uh, texted me and said, "Wow, today's Rare Disease Day. I'm so excited. You have an incredible guest on." 
So I'm very excited. And in light of that, before we begin, I want to remind people, anyone who's listening, that you can call in at 805-830-8363 and ask Michelle anything that you want. Well, not anything, but most things. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm an open book. You can ask yeah. me anything. That's and true. I'll find an appropriate way to answer. <laughs> that's true. That's true. We we just want, yeah, that's true. So, um you know, I, I didn't tell people, but you were on early, early on in my show, and we didn't, we did, it was, at that time, it was only a half-hour show, so we, we just barely touched the service, so I feel very, very lucky that you, you, you know, you've gotten so busy and so famous that I'm very grateful that you took the time to come on, so, um, you know, it's truly a pleasure. So why don't we begin by you giving us, giving the listeners kind of a, you know, a brief summary of your journey, how this all started, what was, you know, the the, the rare disease that, you know, how did this all come about? Sure, absolutely. And as I do that, let me preface it by saying that nurses were the the most important thing in my journey. They helped me more than anybody. So I, I credit my nurses, actually, with getting me personally through what I survived. The doctors were all standing around trying to figure out what was happening, and the nurses were saying, who cares what's happening? Let's just deal with it. Let's just find creative ways. So I have great, great um, respect for your whole profession and, and what all of you do in all the different areas in that profession. Oh, great. So, well, thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> I write about that in my book. I write, I write about, you know, my favorite nurse and how important it was <laughs> in in my experience for her eyes, which I could only see. Um, I'll get into the story in a second, but, you know, I was in quarantine because what I had was so rare, nobody had ever seen it, and there was a very high risk of mortality, and so they quarantined me, which meant nobody was allowed in or out except my direct staff and everybody had on you know the caps the mask the gowns the gloves so i really couldn't see anybody except their eyes and in that moment the eyes you can see really matter (laughs) and my nurses had the most compassionate eyes of all oh and you were young i mean that's when your journey started Uh, you you were very young Yes, that's true. I was 13 when a doctor just by mistake because he just, I don't know, maybe he was just moving too fast that day, did not really read my chart and prescribed for me a medication that I was uh, horribly allergic to. And it turned me basically into a third degree full body burn patient almost overnight. And I ended up with toxic epidermal necrolysis syndrome. There's a big you know, rare disease word day. Yeah, and there's a a name that you understood at 13, right? (laughs) I wish. I think it would have made everything easier if they knew that's what I was struggling with. But um, when I presented with symptoms that, you know, I had a rash, then I started breaking out in little blisters and, you know, everybody just sort of scratched their head. And I remember as a 13-year-old, my parents took me to the doctor, and the doctor sat down and said, I just have no idea what's happening. And, you know, my parents took me to eye doctors and dermatologists and physicians and ophthalmologists because it was affecting so much of me. Before the, the blisters erupted everywhere, they started forming in little places, and nobody could figure out what was happening. And I remember when the doctor, my physician, took us into his office and said, you have two choices because nobody knows what's happening. You can either stay at home and see what happens 
or you can check into the hospital today. <laughs> and I remember the word hospital just sort of hung in the air as I disappeared into it with the real understanding, oh, my God, this is bad. Nobody knows what to do. And if he thinks the hospital is even an idea, we'd better get there as fast as possible. <laughs> so Wow. Well, I mean, that's like, I mean, that must have been like the closing of a door for you. I mean, that's sort of when it started. Right, Harry. You know, it's so yeah. You're so sensitive to understand that. And in in the, the book that I wrote about this experience, um, in Before the World Intruded, I write about that moment particularly as being the moment things really changed yeah. for me, because by the time I came out of the hospital. I was not the girl who had gone into that meeting with the doctor, you know, by any stretch of the imagination. And while I came out and made a full recovery, I mean, those of you who know me, who have been to the HealMyPTSD.com website or have met me when I'm out speaking, you can see I don't look like a burn victim. I, mm-hmm. I had exceptional care. My parents were amazing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've talked to other survivors who weren't as fortunate. So I knew I was going to make a full physical recovery when I came out of the hospital. But, Hari, I just emotionally was devastated by the terror and the pain of it all. I'd had a a near-death out-of-body experience and been told that if this ever happens again, you will die. And so, you know, thanks for (laughs) sending me home (laughs) with with the understanding that I'm, I'm a walking time bomb. You know, that's how it felt to me at 13. And when you think back to yourself at 13, what kind of coping skills did you have? Well, I like would say I had none. <laughs> all, I was, all I knew was how to look at boys at that time. I think that, that yeah. was my coping skill, you know. So yeah. let me just back up. You you went to the hospital because it was so bad, and they you were in there for how long? I was in there for three weeks. Wow. Well, I, I went to the hospital because the way this presents, I had a rash everywhere, and it was beyond itchy. I mean, I was on massive amounts of Benadryl that they made me start taking and prednisone and and everything, trying to suppress whatever was happening, and it wasn't working. So, And then I started, uh, little blisters started forming all over my lips, and I had a a, a very weird photosensitivity. I mean, it, any kind right. of light was just excruciating for my eyes. And at that point, because the rash was spreading and nothing was stopping it or, I mean, I never slept for like a few days yeah. because yeah. it was impossible to sleep that itchy. You just wanted to scratch your skin off. Right. And right, so right. They, they admitted me to the hospital, I think, because they were just worried, we, we don't know what's going on. And it's a good thing because within 24 to 48 hours, I was really, you know, going um, into the deep end of the pool with what was about to occur. Yeah, I I can only imagine. And during that three weeks, did they actually diagnose you with it or or was that later? Like someone said, oh, yeah, you had, by the way, you had this. Oh, no, uh, that's a good question. Um, About a week into it, uh, let's see, no, when I, I I waited a week at home, and then I was in the hospital for three weeks. And about maybe the second day of the hospital, a fantastic dermatologist came on the case, Dr. Mark Grossman. He's still I was at um, I was in New York City at the time at New York Presbyterian Hospital. He's still there. He took care of me for years afterward, and he 
came on the case and he said, you know, I've never seen this, but I think I read something recently in a medical journal about something that sounds familiar and similar to this. And at that point, they thought I had Stevens-Johnson syndrome, which is very similar. Stevens-Johnson syndrome affects less than 30% of your body, and it's um, not usually... um, it's, it's, you know, it, obviously if it's 30% or less of your body, it's not quite so bad as 100% and full coverage. So so even at that point, when I left the hospital, Harry, they all were still telling me, oh, you just had Stevens-Johnson syndrome. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. But, you know, later in my recovery when I started really researching and, and interviewing and trying to put the pieces together, it was a very different story. But, of course, in 1981... It was so rare, and there wasn't the Internet where you could just, you know, now, today, if you're getting a rash and you're starting to have blisters, you can hop on the Internet, and in a second it'll tell you less than 30% of your body is Stevens-Johnson. More than that is toxic epidermal necrolysis syndrome. But back then there wasn't that kind of database. Right, and, you know, the most interesting part of this, I mean, thank God there was a Dr. Grossman, but the fact that he was willing to say, I don't know what this is, but I've read about it, and I'm willing. I'm looking at it, and I'm going to go back. I'm going to read that book, and I think this is what you have. I mean, right. a lot in this in this medical age that we have now, it's actually still rare that we see that because there there's so many rules and regulations and standards of care, and you have to go down this road and that road. Mm. And thank God there was a Dr. Grossman for you. I think that's really, you know, in in your profession, we depend on you all to be creative thinkers. Right. And and I think that's the thing I most valued about Dr. Grossman, is that he didn't have a clue what was happening more than anybody. But Mm -hmm. he was really creative about it. You know, like immediately he said to my parents, we're going to need to move her to the burn unit. This is not going to be okay here. And my parents were really adamant they did not want me in a burn unit because they mm-hmm. didn't want me to be around all the burn victims. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, that's terrifying. Yeah, exactly. Like, she's already a 13-year-old kid and terrified. Let's not make it worse. So my parents bargained with him and said, we'll turn her room into a burn unit. And they did. They hired burn unit nurses. They uh, they needed a, a burn unit bed for me. And Dr. Grossman said, you know, recently I read about this new cutting-edge technology for a burn bed. And he gave the article to my dad, and, you know, it was Labor Day weekend. Of and course. Everybody said, yeah, of course. And everybody said, I needed a burn unit bed because with all the blisters all over my body, it was very painful to be in a bed because the pressure, there was no place for me to lie. There was... Right, you know, right, if you right. push a blister, it it's not comfortable. But a burn unit bed floats you on a on on a sheet of that's um, got silicone balls underneath it, and you turn on a fan, and suddenly you're weightless. And so this would make a big difference in the progression of of my illness. And it was Labor Day weekend, and everybody said to my dad, "You'll have to wait till afterward." And my dad said, "Absolutely not." <laughs> and he uh, called, and they they were in New Jersey, and the guy said, "You know, it's going to be labor. It's Labor Day tomorrow. We can't deliver until Tuesday." And my dad said, "That's unacceptable. If you do not deliver that bed tonight, I will be there tomorrow, and I will get that bed out of your warehouse and bring it to New York City." <laughs> <laughs> you know, and. 
that's a, you know, uh, you, you know, talk all the time about how to be an empowered patient. And right, right, right. That's such a great example of it is, advocating. It is. Yes, and the doctor, too. I mean, it was, you were, in that way, you were really lucky because you had, um, you know, a doctor who actually, you know, advocated for you. And I'm sure the administrators of that hospital said, especially in New York, no, 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 Dr. Grossman. And he said, yes, 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 yes. You know, so you may not know that, but I know that they were not happy campers on the administrative level. (laughs) (laughs) Well, actually, it was my dad that said that. It was my dad who got on the phone. Dr. Grossman gave him the article about the bed, and my dad got on the phone with the company and said, this bed needs to be here within the next 24 hours, or I will come get it myself. The hospital administrators. I'm sure they were not behind this, you know, because I know these guys. They tend to get a little bit feisty when you want to change their rooms around. Anyway, you know, so you had, like, I mean, you had, yeah, and again, I think your father is the perfect example. I love that, those kind of stories. You know, and people think, well, what, you know, maybe maybe something will happen. No, the only thing is what will happen is you'll get the bed or you'll get what you need, <laughs> you know. That's what's going to happen because they're going to give up. They're going to like, okay, 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 crazy man coming. Everybody clear, <laughs> you know. So, oh, you're right. You know, so, so you were in the hospital. You know, interestingly enough, just an aside, we had a case of that in Boston. Mm. Uh, recently made the papers because the, it was a young oh. child who was given Advil or, ah. yeah, ibuprofen who yeah. that happened to, and she's actually blind now. Um, oh. Yeah, no, it was it's it's really sad. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, it, it, it happened several years ago, and now she's – so it's interesting. Um, it, it's, a tough, it's terrible. It is, and it shows you how important the quality of your care is because this – illness causes blisters everywhere including your eyes and you know my parents tracked down an ophthalmologist that they really respected and brought him in on the case and he immediately said we've got to make sure that we take care of her eyes and they started putting something in my eyes so I was I couldn't see a thing because they put so much gooped up stuff in my eyes to make sure that when the cornea blistered that the eyelid wouldn't rip it off. And that, you know, I have a lot of scarring even now. I mean, I'm in the eye doctor, you know, trying to deal with the scarring that went on. And we were talking last week about there's a big scar on my cornea and it's getting in the way of my vision. And, you know, it's residual stuff. But for me, I can still see. And mm-hmm. for others who have less less on the ball care, I've talked to a lot of survivors, and they are dealing with major, major life altering tragedies out out of this experience that is so heartbreaking to see. Yeah, yeah, no, it it, it is, and uh, yeah, that's one of my questions down the road. So we'll get to that con that idea because I think that. Um, you know, part of it is is that the medical community not listening, and you know, you had your, you know, the, I just love the story about your your father. I mean, it was like you, everybody was going to listen. I mean, that's what it takes, and it's still that was what you know. Let's say what you know, twenty years ago or so, and thirty. Yeah. Oh, okay. I was trying to be nice here. Thirty years it's ago. Okay. <laughs> thirty years ago, and um, and you know, it's the exact same thing still goes on. 
exact same thing still goes on with 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 patients in the hospital and these kind of events happening and this kind of need for you know people to advocate for what they need it actually is probably worse now because everything is so uh regimented and but anyway, so I think uh, that's probably true. May I share with you a, another story? Sure, sure, please. Stories, yeah, please. It's about my mom, because my dad. We were in a teaching hospital, so that meant every day rounds of interns and residents coming oh, to yeah. look at the freak. And right. at, a, at a certain point, right. it just was too much. And um, and so my dad and my mom divided their. Um, their chores because they were with me 24 hours a day. My dad stood outside the room guarding the door. My mom <laughs> handled everything that was happening inside the room. <laughs> and um, the, they wanted, uh, I couldn't eat anything because I was just all, everything had erupted my mouth, my throat, everything. And they wanted to put a feeding tube in and my mom I, I'd been on an IV for several days, and they were just saying, this is this is getting to the point where we have to take out the IV and put in a feeding tube. And my mom just was not going to let that happen. So when the doctor was insisting, the physician, not Dr. Grossman, but a physician was insisting, we have got to do this, my mom said, well, can you just give me one day to figure out an alternative? And the doctor, it was like 8 o'clock in the morning, and the doctor said, I will be back for rounds at 4 figured out by then so my mom disappeared and in a little while she comes back Hari, with the most enormous syringe not with a needle but just the syringe part right 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 and a vanilla milkshake from mcdonald's and she sucks up as many cc's (laughs) in the syringe as possible and she says to me do not swallow do not move your mouth just open your mouth and lie still and let this trickle down oh. until it gets to your stomach. <laughs> oh my God, that brings tears to my eyes. I mean, well, the, the, I mean, it's it's remarkable. And oh. it worked. It was hard. I mean, the, you know, you have a gag reflex, so it's very hard yeah. to try not to swallow. But uh, it was an, it was an, a difficult thing to learn. But we practiced. <laughs> And, you know, within 45 minutes, we'd gotten down maybe a quarter of the shake, and with time, we got better at it. But when the doctor came back at the end of the day, she was just stupefied that my mother had come up with this as a plan. And then she started to laugh. And she said to my mom, you win, but she'll need four of those shakes a day. And my mom said, we'll do it. Yeah, right. and it's just another example, and, and I write about it more in depth than before the world intruded, this this idea of advocating for what you need and asking for it and, and using creativity to find solutions. Wow, wow. I mean, that's – yeah, I mean, that's – well, there's a there's an issue there too. Like doctors come in and they say it has to be this way. Well, you know what? You can say no. Just say no. I mean, that's really actually we have that power. We have that power to say no. We we can't, we're not going to do that. We're going to find a solution. And you know, in her saying, "Well, I'm coming back at four, you know, or else." Well, she doesn't. I mean, that was nice of her to. I mean, yeah, she said that, but. That's not even real either because you as a patient, as a family, can say, I need more time. Now you guys back off. But it's very difficult because you're in this big – you're in a hospital. They're medical. They're coming in. They're not smiling. They're giving you medical words, and you're going, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh, and they're looking at, you know, their loved one. Okay, 
you know, but but I mean, the, your parents, wow, can I hire them? <laughs> <laughs> they were amazing, and I think part of the problem, and you can shed more light on this in terms of how to handle it, part of the problem is when you're going through a, an illness or, or medical trauma, you're already feeling small and powerless and out of control, and you look to the medical staff for the antithesis of all those things. And I think you give up so much of who you are because you need so much. But then how do you reclaim it in order to hear what a doctor is suggesting and still make your own best informed decision? That's like, wow, I never looked at it that way, but that's exactly what happens. It's that sense that I have, well, there's no power. You have no power in in the hospital because, A, you don't get real-time communications. So you don't really know what's going on. So you're going off the fact that the, with the little information you're given. And, you know, you can ask the nurses, and you know, and they want to help you, but they're like, well, they didn't chart it or I don't know what's going on or – and so the only thing that I tell people, well, is to have family members there all the time to support you and to ask questions. Now, don't be, you know, don't be coward. That everybody says to me, well, what if they won't take care of my loved one if I ask, if I question them? No, 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 no. That's what we have to change as medical people. You know, we have to do it because you know what? Your by doing that, your parents saved your life. They they did. They saved my life. They saved my eyes. I mean, for yeah. the problems that I'm dealing with today, I can see. So I'll take the problems I've got, you know, and the scarring that occurred over the alternative any day. So so you're right. And I think, too, Harry, don't you, that when we act as empowered patients, we gain strength from that. And that alone can help support the outcome of what you're trying to survive because yes. we know from a you know brain science standpoint how what you think impacts what you experience and I, and I think the more we stand up for ourselves as frightening as that can be the better our outcomes are obviously in the situation but also internally yeah yeah no no i i have to agree with that um i mean i could go on I could go on about residents, but I'm not going to. Okay, we that's a whole <laughs> show for me. I just I'll just say one thing. I had this one client. And we uh, the the client was the son. His mother was in the hospital, and this one resident came in, and he was the chief resident. And when he was gone, the guy, the my the the son turned to me and said, "Do you think he actually? I mean, do you really think he graduated from med school? He looks about 12." <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, that's, you know, part of the problem is that, you know, it, it, it can seem so daunting to have someone so, you know, so young come in and, and talk to you, you know, as if, you know, they puff up their, you know, their, their feathers and you're like, yeah. oh, okay. Anyway, so it, it's an ongoing issue and it's not going to go away. But anyway, so um, you, you know, so you, you got out of the hospital and so began your 20 or your, what is it, about 10 years or 20 years of spinning out of control because mm-hmm. of this trauma. Is that, I mean, is that a good way to put it, that you couldn't it, get a grasp on what happened? I really couldn't get a grasp on how to live in light of what had happened. Um, I think that we come out of a trauma and 
there's a very big chasm between who you were before and who you are after. And it's very difficult to navigate that new territory. You have been changed in ways that you did not choose, and you have been altered in terms of your belief system, the way you interact with the world, the way you perceive the world, the way you connect with yourself. And all of that, it's it's like you, you come out of... I interviewed on my radio show a grief expert, and he said to me, you know, Michelle, people who've been through trauma are like Martians trying to live on Earth. Oh. It's just a whole other, like, you know, species. Right. And I, I think that's really accurate. So I came out of the hospital, and, you know, I, I write, there, there's a whole chapter in my book called The New Girl, because I looked in the mirror, and I looked vaguely familiar but I wasn't me anymore. I was full of anxiety and full of worry and 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 full of the knowledge that this could happen and the next time it will kill me. And I don't know how to live in that body or be comfortable in that body. So I spent a lot of time dissociating, you know, trying to get out of it. So I wasn't quite as uncomfortable. And And also, you know, the idea of, how do we reclaim a sense of safety and control after a trauma rocks your world and now the way you look at other people or the world itself is is entirely different and your belief system, which is really at the core of how you experience the world, drastically can alter. For example, when I came out of the hospital, I came out with the belief I did not deserve to be alive. I felt oh. that... I, I, and that that was a belief that for the next 20 years I deserved, I wasn't, I believed I wasn't deserving of living. So you treat yourself rather shabbily when that's your belief. And you let other people treat you pretty shabbily when you don't believe you deserve to be here to begin with. So I think that's a real problem, and you're right. That just, for me, escalated my post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms, which at the time, in the 1980s, nobody was looking at a, a civilian kid with a medical trauma as a PTSD candidate. It was really only being applied to the military. And right. so nobody recognized my symptoms. Oh, I was just a, you know, a difficult teenager. Or right. later, I was... You know, I was, I've been a writer since I was seven, so later I was just a temperamental artist. And, you know, Holly, even in myself, I thought, you know, some people on this earth, their journey is to be the crazy person, and that's me. And, mm -hmm. okay, I'll just try to live like a crazy person. Mm -hmm. But then there's always that little voice in you that says, really? <laughs> is this really the way it's supposed to be? And because it's frightening to heal and frightening to stay the same, you get sort of stuck. Right. And it, it took a really long time for me to find the help I needed, unfortunately. You know, what I learned later is there are so many effective strategies for dealing with trauma and the effects of trauma and certainly PTSD. I lost over 25 years of my life, but th that really wasn't necessary. No, and that's, you know... It's. It, I mean, it, it, it's a. It's also a reflection of. I imagine when you got out of the hospital and you would go see your medical community, they didn't know what to say to you either. I mean, your medical providers. 
I mean, was and I imagine your parents were very stressed too, watching you. You know what? What ha- and they must have thought, what happened? You know, we got her out of the hospital. She's walking around. She's back. <laughs> And here she is. We don't recognize her either. I mean, it's a trauma for you especially, but then for family members also. That's such a great point, and it wasn't one that I really realized or thought about until after my PTSD recovery. But, you know, what happens to the people who watch those of us that have rare diseases? You know, what happens to the family that stands by you? And I've, I've asked my mom since, how did you do that? Because... It was excruciating, and I was not a good patient in the sense that I was noisy. You know, I let you know that I was in pain. I screamed my head off (laughs) all the time and begged for more medication and was just beside myself. As a mother, how do you watch that? And I've asked my mom, how did you do that? And she said, you know, Michelle, there were times that I would feel I was about to pass out from the the enormous strain on me and my feeling about what was happening to you. And I, I kept myself on my feet by saying, if you pass out, who will take care of her? Oh, And, and so true. you're right, because we, you know, when we focus on the survivor, we forget that there are those who helped us survive, and their journeys were also incredibly difficult. Right, right. So um, you, you know, you you went through. I'm sure you just went through medical people and mental health people, you know, like popcorn, <laughs> you know, and just over and over and over. And and uh, it seems that they just ignored what you were saying to them. Well, I'll be honest with you, Harry. I wasn't exactly honest. So mm-hmm. for the first 10 years after my trauma, I refused to speak about it. Oh, um, and if uh, you, I couldn't. I just, you know, the way uh, I describe it in mm-hmm. Before the World Intruded is uh, there were no words. All I heard in my head was just one long, enormous scream. And so there was no way to communicate what I was thinking or feeling or how the memories were affecting me because I really thought you're going to have to put me in a straitjacket and in a padded room if I try to talk about this. I'll, I I can't stay in this body and and deal with the way it feels to face this stuff. So for 10 years, anybody who suggested that I might possibly need some therapy, <laughs> I just unleashed this enormous rage on until I, uh-huh. I told you know, my whole family, do not bring it up. I don't want to hear about it. No one is to mention what I survived. No one is to talk about the hospital. Nobody is to bring this up. And so I really shut everybody down until, you know, 10 years later, I was quite a mess with an eating disorder and all kinds of, you know, self-destructive restrictions. And um, when my parents took me, forced me into therapy, I just would sit there and, and, you know, I had nothing to say because I didn't know why I was behaving the way I was behaving. Because you you had put it away in your mind. I mean, you had blocked it off, and that's like really what PTSD is. It's the blocking Mm. of that. I mean, it's holding that memory somewhere. And meanwhile, your brain and your body is trying to push it out, and it's the battle. I mean, is that sort of – I mean, that's how I sort of see it in a way. It's that constant battle that you're – 
I'm not going to talk about this, but the other part of you saying, oh, police, can we do something? <laughs> oh, hi, I absolutely agree. It is that battle. And even, you know, in, in my own journey, what I really felt was there was a battle between my survivor self. This is later in my recovery. Um, but I, I really came to understand there was the battle between my survivor self who really felt it was important to hold on to what we had learned. The world is dangerous. You could die any minute. It's not safe here, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the self that wants to really honor what you've been through. And, and, and we think that by remembering and focusing, we are honoring that experience versus the part of me that really was dying to be set free. Right. And it wasn't until I'd gone through enough of the recovery process that that other part that wanted to be free gained enough strength to come up and be an equal contender. And when that happened, the battle between those two selves became more um, balanced and ultimately, you know, the the good part won. Uh, I mean, they're both good parts, but... Um, the the part of me that wanted to reclaim my life and live and and believe I deserve to live really won out and I, I I'm so thankful that she did but I think you're right it is definitely it feels like an intense battle inside of you and who can explain what that feels like and how are you supposed to ask for help because it sounds crazy. Right, right, right. I got this voice on this side telling me I'm okay. This other voice, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay, honey. You know, here's some medication. <laughs> but you know, so what was the catalyst that 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 made you like sit up in your chair and say, "I'm done. I'm, I'm I got to find out what's going on." Was I mean, was there a catalyst, or was it sort of a There was, there was. Um, After 10 years of an intense eating disorder and an enormous amount of bad PTSD behavior, you know, the the mind is capable of producing 50% more stress than the body can handle. And as a medical person, you know how the body responds to stress. It breaks down in all kinds of wonky ways. Uh-huh. So I had liver problems. I'm not a drinker. I never have been. So it wasn't I that I was doing something bad to my liver. It was just be, beside itself with stress, I suppose, because it was right, doing right. all kinds of weird things. And my stomach, my intestines, they, my bones, they, they thought I had liver cancer. They diagnosed me with celiac disease. Then they diagnosed me with mercury poisoning. I mean, a slew of erroneous diagnoses. And and I finally got to a day, it was 2005, mm-hmm. I think it was 2000, yeah, it was 2005, and um, really cold day in Manhattan, which is where I'm from, and I, something was really wrong with my bones, and so I was now on my way to the top endocrinologist in Manhattan, I sit down with him, and he looks at me and says, you have advanced osteoporosis. You are 35 years old. This is ridiculous. What what are you doing? And I looked at him and I said, I I don't know. I've I've also maybe have liver cancer and celiac disease and mercury poisoning. I don't know. And 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 all of all of and and so he said to me, you know, we're putting you on this and we're going to do this and the really more than anything, Michelle, you need to gain weight. And I was, you know, extremely, you know, anorexia is you don't eat. So there you go. I was mm-hmm. way too thin. And, and it turned out 
and this is interesting, Hari, you'll resonate with this. Um, I had very high, uh, oh, I'm blanking on the name of cortisol. I had very high cortisol. Okay, yeah, and cortisol is something that registers the adrenal and the potential, you know, the stress factor. Right, and the endocrinologist wrote in my report, she has very high cortisol, but because she has so many other more important issues, I'm not going to address that at this time. Yeah, right. But high cortisol... Yeah, but see, you're sitting here saying, oh, that's a stress thing. Well, hello. So so here I am bouncing around Manhattan to all the top doctors for liver and stomach and intestine and bone, and nobody can figure out what to do. And it's, it's they're all just missing the stress factor, which really would have helped me, you know. Sure, um, sure. So you asked me the, the pivotal point. I came out of that meeting understanding that at the age of 35, this is what the doctor said to me about my bones. If you do not turn this around, advanced osteoporosis, within 10 years, your bones will begin to spontaneously crumble. Right. Exactly. Yeah, and, yeah. Yeah. And that was a wake-up call for me, Hari. All of a sudden, I thought, oh, my God, you know, I'm used to living as a chronic patient, and I've learned how to do that, but I don't think I can live with my bones spontaneously crumbling. I don't know how to do that. <laughs> so, yes, yeah, so you don't want to be a... You don't want to be a, a part of a Star Trek, you know, episode. Well, I know. It's com- just... Combusting, you know, like, ah. Yeah, it's like in your mind, you can just imagine you take a step off the curb to hail a cab and your knee just spontaneously crumbles and you sink yep. to the ground. But where does it crumble to, you know? Yeah, just, yeah. I, just the whole imagery for me did not work. And so I, I thought something's... I've got to do something. And as I walked out of his office into this icy, cold February Manhattan day, tears streaming down my face, I realized how frightened I was and how I had always lived feeling so frightened. And that was an interesting wake-up call to me because I lived in such high anxiety it became normal. And I, I thought that was how everybody lived. But in that moment, I realized I was always driven by fear. And that sent me back into therapy and very focused on, I've got to get to the bottom of this fear that I live with. And, of course, mm-hmm. we all know where our fears come from. Mm-hmm. You know, even if we don't admit or acknowledge them, we know mm-hmm. if you take the time. And so I knew that this all had to be related to my illness because I'd never dealt with it. And it sent me hardcore into finding and searching for answers. And I started advocating for myself more than I'd ever done at that point, researching what it meant to have survived what I survived, and then researching what it meant to be traumatized, and researching what it meant to live with dissociation. And that led me to all this PTSD literature that I had never heard about. And I had, you know, they have a great little 22-question test, a PTSD self-test, which is now on the HealMyPTSD.com website because I think it's such a valuable tool. And I took the test. There are 22 questions, and I answered positively to 20 of them. And I went to my therapist and said, you know, do you think I have PTSD? I don't think so because I didn't really want a mental health label. <laughs> right, 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 exactly, because once that gets in your chart, you're, you know, you can get, be denied this, that, and everything else. And and once it gets into your head, like, yeah. it changes how you see yourself. Right, right, and I, right. That really, I already didn't see myself very well or nicely. Mm-hmm. But um, his answer to me was, what is PTSD? 
And at that point, I came to understand that both the psychological and the medical people that I had helping me really were clueless about how to help me. And that sent me on a journey of finding a trauma-trained professional to really help me solidify what's going on here. And that's when I started going outside of the traditional medical and psychological arena to get help. You know, my whole recovery really I credit with the alternative therapies. Because mm-hmm. I've been alternative sitting in... Like what? Yeah. Like, Go ahead. like which, which, which areas? I mean, when you say alternatives, why don't you tell people what, 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 do you, what you mean by that exactly? Sure. Well, I started, as we all do, in talk therapy and cognitive behavior therapy, which I think is valuable. You don't heal there, but you definitely can can become a little more empowered by finding the language and, mm-hmm. and getting the chaos in your head a little more organized. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, you know, so much of how we experience trauma, as you alluded to earlier, is it's held in your body. It's right. held in the deepest parts of your brain that are not mm-hmm. cognitive. You know, mm-hmm. the conscious mind is 12% of your brain. Now, we spend 90% of our time there, but it's the smallest part of who you are, and it speaks language that is logical and analytical. But the 88% of your subconscious mind that holds all of your memories and all of your belief system and drives 100% of your behavior, that part of your brain speaks in metaphors and symbols and stories. So you can sit and talk. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, exactly. So you can sit and talk therapy forever. You're not going to reach that part of your brain, and that is really what helped me to understand to go outside of the traditional model and say, we need to get to the part of my brain that's not accessible by like just regular logical thinking. It's that other part that's really got a problem, and. And there are great, powerful techniques for that. For me personally, and we're all different, but I do see a high rate of efficacy in where I ended up, which was hypnosis and neurolinguistic programming, two very gentle processes that immediately brought me to a much better place and ultimately to freedom. Mm-hmm. But I should say point. that... Yeah, well, I said I just wanted to add that by the time I got there, I had used eight other modalities, and I think it's valuable. We just keep trying what we need until we find the answer. And there were some modalities I really hated, and okay, after three sessions, I decided we're not doing that again. (laughs) And then others that were nice and they had great benefit, but they didn't free me. My goal was to not live coping. I wanted to be free. And so I think we just keep putting together all the things we can try until we find the thing that really deeply resonates and gets to the heart of the matter and pushes us out to the other side. And I think that's an excellent point. I think that's that's a point in PTSD or in almost any illness is that or you have to find what works for you. And that goes for doctors, find the right doctors that works for you, but find the right treatment modality. Find don't give up. I mean that was that was an amazing your story is amazing because you just didn't give up. You just you had a vision once you knew you were wanting to get you were going to heal, not heal but free yourself from this from from this fear that you were carrying around for so many years. You know, you kept going, and that is so important. And I actually, I mean, your website speaks to that also. All, you know, you list alternatives. You support people in their journey 
I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, in their journey to find the answer, you link the resource. Here are the resources, kids, you know. Here, mm. don't give up. I mean, that, you know, as a coach, that must be a, something you speak to a lot, you know, when you talk, when you coach people. You know, let's not give up here. You know, let's keep going because that's the, sometimes the hardest part because people think, oh, you know, I'm going to this one person. They're going to help me because they're supposed to be the best. Well, they may not be the best for you. And I think that's something you speak very clearly to, which is critical to people's uh, healing. I I think you're right, and and I love the way you just said it. They may not be the best for you because you may not be ready or you may not like the way they, you know, it's so subtle. Sometimes you can just not like somebody's body language, and that can be so distracting that you don't allow the trust to build that you need in order for them to help you. So you really have to be in tune with your response to someone and your response to a modality and trust that. It's valid. And there are so many ways to heal that you don't have to stick with one that feels uncomfortable. And there are so many people who can help you. You don't have to stick with one that doesn't feel right. Right, right. I have this great client. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I have this great client who, and I also say sometimes you have to mix and match. You know, there's never, it might not just be one. That's what you did. You know, you did hypnosis and neurolinguistic programming, which just sort of go along the same, but they're a little bit different in their own way. You know, they're, but they're, but sometimes you have to mix and match modalities to get through your illness, whatever it may be. And I remember this one client of mine who just, um, kept trying different things and she, she, she would get so into an alternative mo- and, and it was helping and then it stopped and then she'd be like well okay and she still had the problem and finally and I, I kind of like just shrug my shoulders and finally she put it all together and actually it were it took about three years but there she was she I saw her one day and she said I no longer have that pain I'm okay I can swim again and I was wow. like, wow. Yeah, so that's what you did too. You now you can swim again in your brain, so to speak, you know, and because you 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 mixed and matched and you tried different things until you found that which would work would help you release parts of that unconsciousness that needed to be released, that memories could be released, you know, or, mm-hmm. or not released, but accepted perhaps. Is that the right word? Well, I, you know, we all choose our our words that are right for us. I like what you said. I I like the word healing. I like the word cured. I like the word released. Because will we always have our memories? Sure. I mean, they're part of who we are. Mm-hmm. And they make us better in who we are, you know, when we mm-hmm. get to that point of personal growth sure. and recovery. Uh-huh. Um, so I, But I also like the idea of... Letting it go, because to me, when we, and this is true for PTSD, but it's true for any anything, you know, um, when we hold on so tightly, it's too tight, and mm-hmm. we really do need to let go in order to free ourselves. So I like the word release. I'm I'm with you 100%. Okay, good. <laughs> um, <laughs> so you work a lot, I mean, and, and thank goodness there's people like you, you work a lot with vets who have PTSD. You know, we've heard a lot about that in the news, and, you know, I think a lot of people who have, don't know someone with it or haven't experienced it are kind of numb to those, you know, the, the PTSD. They hear it and go, oh, oh, okay. And, I mean, what's that, I mean, 
first, thank you so much. I mean, these men and women serve, and then they come back traumatized, and it's hard. So what kind of work do you do with them? I mean, I, I saw that you belong, you're on the board there, so why don't you talk a little bit about that? Uh, I'm just so pleased that war, the Warriors Pathfinder program is dedicated to helping warriors transition, and that's in all shapes and forms in terms of finding employment to, you know, dealing with mental health issues. And what I love is more and more of the military organizations, not necessarily the military itself, but ancillary organizations and some parts of the military are starting to understand that we are we really need to step up and support our veterans much more than we have been. It's not about just bringing them home and cutting them loose. Mm-hmm. And it's not about giving them three different kinds of meds at the highest dosage and shuffling them all into group therapy. It, it's not about that. It's about taking them and allowing them to shift from, like all of us, all trauma survivors have to make the shift from powerless to powerful. And a lot of that, I feel, is an identity crisis. We lose who we used to be, and now we have to choose who we're going to become. And what I love about the Warriors Pathfinder program is that they came to me and said, how, how, how would you suggest we do this, and could you design a program? And so that's that's, you know, the crux of, where their focus is is in terms of giving people a three-month coaching program that I've designed that allows them to work through a process of reclaiming who they are. Because once you heal that inner connection, and I write about this a lot in Before the World Intruded because to me, when I really started to understand PTSD recovery for myself was when I understood that it boiled down to two things an identity crisis, and a trauma addiction. And if I could redefine my identity so I was no longer in crisis over it, and if I could end that addiction to the past, I thought I'd be free. And, in fact, that is what I did in, like, a little parallel track of both. And so what we're doing with with this program is designing a process of moving through how you reclaim yourself after a traumatic experience. And we're working there and developing it for veterans. But it's actually a process, I think, that has great civilian opportunities because we we are all very individual in our trauma but very universal in our PTSD experience. And right. we're all really traveling the same path there. No, I, I agree, and that's such a great, great point because PTSD, um, it it doesn't discriminate when you have yeah. a trauma, no matter what the trauma is, the brain responds. And um, I, I know I had PTSD from a uh, bike, uh, bike accident, a cycling accident. Yeah. And um, it didn't raise its head right away. You know, it, it was a year later. And But anyway, I was able to get help, uh, you know, get into mental, I, you know, EMDR is what I worked for me. Mm. And uh, but then when I had a uh, years, several years later, I had a car accident. I knew right away I had to go get take this taken care of because what had happened during that time is I became aware that I changed, and I just find that an amazing concept that you have created there. And I know it's not your, I mean, we were probably going to say, well, it's not my concept, but the way you verbalize it, that you, you're not yourself anymore. And you, you have to choose who you want to become. 
Mm-hmm. Because we always want, I tell people you can't go back. You're, there's no going back. Those days, you know, I mean, I don't, don't always say it quite like that, you know. But I do say it like that. I'm okay, laughing because I love that you say it like that because that's okay. what we try to do. That's the whole the whole title of my book, Before the World Intruded, is based on the concept that I kept trying to go back to who I was before the world intruded. So I'm with you all the way. Keep going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. So I think that 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 you're, you know, it's so important that that uh that you 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 emphasize that. I mean I just love it. I've never heard it said that way and I I think if people take anything away from this, you know, from talking today is that because it's so powerful. When you have PTSD, you're in the wasteland. You know, mm-hmm. and you talked that's sort of what you've been talking about this wasteland of 20 years of not knowing who you were and not wanting to talk about it and anorexia. It's the wasteland. You know, it's like in, in uh, The Lord of the Rings, I, did, I don't know if you saw that movie, but, you know, when they're trying to get to Mordor, you know, to get, throw the ring in the fire, that wasteland there, that's what it's like. You don't know where you are. And you think, well, I know, I get dressed, uh, there's my husband or there's my mother, you know, but no, 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 it's not happening that way. So I really, I mean, I, I, I think that's so powerful, Michelle. I, I, I just love it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And I think it's something that we don't talk about often enough. You know, we come out of a trauma and other people's expectations or our own personal expectations for how we move forward really start to define how we behave. I felt I should be courageous. I felt I should not bring any more problems to my family. I mean, ironically, I think I brought more problems because I tried not to, but um, I think it would have been easier for them if I had just said, I really can't handle all of this. But instead, I I started hiding who I was, hiding the anxiety, hiding the the insomnia, hiding the nightmares. I didn't tell anybody. And, and, And then, of course, you just keep taking yourself down the wrong path when if you I think if you can accept how you've changed, no. If you can accept the fact that you've changed, then you can start working on what to do about it. But for so long, we fight the fact that we changed. And that's, I think, where we sort of get lost in the quicksand, and then we have to figure out how am I going to get out of there. Right, And it's not easy, but it can be done. No, and you're a perfect example of how it can be done. I mean, it's really, I mean, because... It's not easy. It, well, it takes work, and you know. But the work, people, you know, you're out there. There's people like you who will help. You know, I mean, your website again, healmyptsd.com. Uh, you know, it's so informational and it's so open. You know, here, take this, take this. Like this can help. You know, and you, <laughs> you know, and 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 that's what people need. They need. I know I refer people to your site all the time. People when you. you know I've gotten vets who called and you know PTA. You know I said, well go to this site. That's a start. They'll be able to help you. You know that site will help you get started. Mm-hmm. You know and and I think that's what people need too a place where they can get started because they're roaming around and then they you know they need to be focused. Oh, there's other people like me. Oh, you know so that's like so so wonderful about your site and the work that you do because the long Loneliness is profound, you know, mm-hmm. until we choose that we're not going to be, you know, we're going to come out of that, 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 that wasteland, um, where it's, it's lonely. It's, it's scary and lonely. 
You're so right, and the biggest shock is that you're not alone. That You know, for years I thought, well, no one will understand anything that I say, even if I say it, because nobody, you know, one in two million people survive what I survived. So it's not like there's a club of us that's meeting. And, right. <laughs> and And it really was a shock to me, Holly, when I started blogging about my PTSD recovery, thinking I'm just doing this for myself because nobody's going to understand me. And the first people that responded to my blog were veterans writing oh. to me saying, how do you know exactly how I feel? Oh. And I, I wrote back to them, I, I don't know, I'm just writing how I feel. And that was very interesting. And then, of course, domestic violence survivors and child abuse and sexual assault, all of these different areas of trauma started writing to me saying, you're putting words in my mouth. And that that really was so profound, and it's the reason that I built the HealMyPTSD.com website, was number one for the reason you said we needed information that was easy to access and easy to understand all in one place. Mm-hmm. And number two, I really feel we don't heal in isolation. We heal in community, and we need a positive community in which to do that. And And that was also a big part of that mission. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's that's wonderful. Yeah, you know we're almost we're a little bit past a half hour, but I have some extra time. If you have a few more minutes to stay with me, and do you have of a course. few more minutes? Of oh, okay, good, good. Anything yeah. for you, Hari? Oh, I love it. Yeah, I put some extra time on for my show today because I thought, oh, I have Michelle, and there's always so much to talk about, <laughs> and we have so much fun. Yeah, that's true. That's there too. Don't tell anyone, okay? Oh, everybody's listening. <laughs> I'm just sorry I didn't get more any calls, but. You know, I know that people do listen after, so uh, I know they'll go to your website. Um, So, yes, this idea of community, and it's very difficult when you're suffering from PTSD or trauma, uh, that um, this idea of community. So how do you link community on your website? Do you direct people to services? Do you have something on your site that's like a chat or something? Actually, we have um, a couple of different things. It's not a live community in that sense, and for that there are things like dailystrength.org or ptsdforum.org. Um, what, what I have endeavored to do is build a community where everybody um, participates through their presence either on the Heal My PTSD fan page on Facebook and also um, so many survivors have added to, for example, we have a page, How Survivors Define PTSD. You know, obviously we have a page of the clinical definition, but when you live with PTSD, it doesn't sound the same as, you know, how the DSM describes it. And so everybody emails in what their description is, and we put it all up. And we also have a a great series on the Heal My PTSD blog called Survivors Speak. And it is just tons of survivors writing in how they're managing, how they're coping, how they're moving forward. And so you really have a lot of voices sharing what's working for them. And that to me is so special because it's very easy to get together and all say, oh, this is just so so horrible. And that's all true, and we know that. And there are lots of places to go to to sit in the muck. But mm-hmm. I didn't want a community that sits in the muck. I wanted all of us to stand up and mm-hmm. start taking in action. And, and so those are the stories that are on the site. And what I love about that 
So it's really a place where everybody comes to share their ideas through guest posts, through the fan page, and and by adding to the site. The site, you know, I I built the site, but survivors have helped me expand it, and, and that, I think, is really special. Right, right. No, it is. It is. You've created a... Uh, yeah, that's the community. Uh, so, what are before we go? What are some of the? Pro- I have two questions for you. What are some of the projects you're working on that you can let us in on, or things that are happening for you with your work? Uh, I will share some very exciting things. And one thing I will tell you that I haven't told anybody yet. Oh, so. <laughs> I, I didn't know you were going to ask me that question. So we are really breaking news without planning it. Um, number one, I'm, and this is not the breaking news, I'll save that for last. Number one, I'm very excited because before the world intruded, conquering the past and creating the future, my book about recovery and how we get it done was nominated as a finalist for the Books for a Better Life Award. So I'm very excited about that. The award ceremony is um, in a week and a half. So I'm, I just feel so honored to have been included in such a prestigious little group. So I'm psyched about that. And um, I am speaking. I'm the keynote speaker. If any of your listeners are in Nashville, please come say hello at the uh, Tra- Traumatic Brain Injury Association of Tennessee. Wow. Their major conference is March 22nd. And um, it's going to be a really great event. I'm very looking forward to that. And, okay, so now I'll tell you the thing I haven't told anybody. A major New York City publisher reached out to me and asked me if I could write any book about PTSD, what would it be? Uh And I responded with, I would like to write a book about PTSD and identity in the recovery process. And they thought that sounded great. (laughs) So so we are just now, today, finishing up the contract, and the book will be out next year, and it will be called Your Life After Trauma, Powerful Practices for Constructing Your Post-Trauma Identity. So there you go, Hari, breaking news. Oh, I'm going to put that on my uh, blog and my website. I'm going to tweet it. Is that Okay. Oh, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. So can you just email me the whole title because I didn't get to write that all down? I but will, email yes. it And I will, you know, uh, because uh, congratulations. You know, and Thank I guess you. I have to say on the side is we probably won't hear from you for a year because if you're while you're writing anyway, because I know what that's like when my, my friends have written books. <laughs> I'm like, okay, see you in a couple months. Actually, you know what, because I've been a writer since I was seven, I it just flows out of me. I just finished up now a book that I'm going to publish myself called Transforming Your Identity, and it's all about how to reclaim your sense of self and pursue the life you want, and it's 13 core strategies for doing that. So it's just sort of... I think if you 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 know me, I'm chatty. <laughs> so yeah. when I sit down to write a book, it's like I'm just having a conversation. So you'll hear from me. I'll still be in touch with you. Okay, good. Well, I mean, <laughs> I'm I'm excited for you because you know that's people really need it. I mean, they're what you you do it in such a positive light. You know, so much PTSD. When I think often, I you know when when I think in color sometimes, and sometimes it's so it can seem so dark because that's where I was and that dark place. Yeah. So, you know, when I when I think of you and what you've done, and I, when I go to your website, it's like, oh, rainbow, here we are, it's a rainbow. <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> 
so it's really wonderful and it's 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 it is that so i'm very glad and of course when so here it is when that book is published you're coming back on and we're just going to talk about the book oh you for know, sure that yes. sounds great that's a done deal i would love to Right, and by, yeah, yeah, uh, that's fantastic, because that book, I know that book's going to be amazing. So, and I'll watch you on the Today Show when you're on, okay? Oh, sounds great. Maybe you'll come on with me, and oh, we'll yeah, talk sure. about <laughs> the, all of these things, and how it applies to being empowered and, and advocating for yourself in your journey. Okay, I'll carry your briefcase on, and then they'll let me on. <laughs> Are you kidding that is ridiculous, Harry. You have so you bring gravitas. You've got little letters after your name that are so important. Oh, thank you, dear. Thank you. Um, it's but you know so I'm so grateful for your work. And before we go, last question. Then I gotta let you go. I mean, I mean, we could go on all night, but I don't think people. Really are. <laughs> it's um, true. Yeah. Um, uh, what? Okay. And I know I've asked this, but what? What's your sage advice to someone who, like, is staring at this fear? What would you say to them? What what word would you What would you whisper to them to get them started to sort of give them that little push? Okay, here. Can you think of? I mean, I know you must. I have can. Some. I can. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, you said one word. I would whisper courage. Oh. It's really all about courage, and my mom taught me that when I was in the hospital and I had this out-of-body experience and I, and, and I had the presence of mind to know, I, I, I could feel all of the energy leaving my body and I felt myself go up and there was a black tunnel and it was ringed with white light and I was just being drawn there like a magnet and so happy to think I was dying, so grateful because I just couldn't bear the thought of living through another moment. And um, and I and I actually, you know, you could say, I wanted to say goodbye. So I said to my parents, who were standing on either side of my bed, um, thank you, I love you, and I'm dying. And my mom, my dad just froze, you know. <laughs> I don't think he knew yeah, what yeah. to do. Yeah. But yeah. here's my mom, this little five-foot-two southern woman, and she... And you couldn't touch me, so it's not like she could hold my hand or anything. She could only use her words. And she bent her face down close to mine, and she said to me, Michelle, you are going to live through this. You come back here, and you go down deeper into yourself than you've ever been, and you find the strength to make it through. And I said, I I can't do it. I just don't, don't have it in me. And my mom said to me, Courage is a choice. Make it. And, you know, as a 13-year-old kid, when your mom gets strict, you you do, if you can, you do what she tells you to do. And, And so I really made the effort to come back down into the body and go down and do what she did, what she said deeper than I'd ever been, and pull up that courage. And I I think that in all of our lives, there are those moments when courage is the only choice, and you've got to make it no matter how terrifying it is. And so that is that is my answer to your question, Hari, courage. Oh, well, that's, that's yeah, what can I say? There's nothing else to say of that, but it's so true. And so uh, I have one thing to say. Can you say thank you to your mother for me? Oh, I will. I absolutely will. I thank her all the time. 
not only for saving me, but for enduring me because she <laughs> took the brunt of my PTSD. Well, tell her thank you so much, and um, you know she 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 yeah. So thank you. Well, Michelle, <laughs> we've come to the end of our time today, and I want to thank you so so very much for doing this. It was it was you bring out the best of me. It was wonderful. You are so much fun, and you have such a sensitivity to the real nuances of what you're talking about, Hari, that Mm. that's what really makes you so special. So thank you for what you do, not only here on the air, but every day in your work. Oh, thank you. Well, we'll be in touch. And, uh, again, people, everybody, check out the website, healmyptsd.com. Dot com. If you know someone who has PTSD and is, you know, needs some help, that's the place to start. So thank you, and we'll talk soon. Absolutely. Thank you, and have a great night. You too. Thank you. Bye-bye.